Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, and this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Today I want to talk to you about Jesus and why why I still work hard to maintain faith in Christ and to some lesser degree because it's connected to maintain faith in the church because I get, I get people asking me all the time like like why do you still believe like like Jesus for instance if you if you apply the same kind of criticism that you do to the to Mormonism in terms of critical thinking and then look at the the New Testament and the Old Testament and use that same kind of critical thinking you you begin to realize that Jesus is messy too and I don't disagree with you I've I've read uh Reza Aslan I've read Bart Ehrman on the critical side I've I've spoken to David Bakavoy on a few occasions and listened to NT Wright on the faithful side and I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't serious issues with the historicity of Jesus. And and when I sit and listen to historical discussions of the shroud of Turin or the the burial tombs of Jesus's family that there is these these tombs this tomb with with each of these like um stone or or cement coffins and that the label the labeled names on the outside of each of these is the exact names matching Jesus's family including Jesus himself and and what that maybe tells you about this I mean I'm aware of the issues I'm aware of of Matthew Mark Luke and John and and Mark being written first and Matthew and Luke coming after and John being an entirely separate thing and, and how these stories don't mesh and how there's contradictions. I, I completely grasp why people feel inclined to just let Jesus go and to just let belief in God go. And, and I'm, I understand the arguments and I understand why people would make that leap. And so I thought I'd take today and share with you briefly. I don't I don't think this will be very long, but briefly why I just can't let Jesus go. Like I I really just I can't. And so there's a lot that goes into it and and I want to kind of set up a little bit of this talk with the idea that that scripture scripture the, the Bible as we have it, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price are written by men, about men, for men. And flawed men at that. When I say men, I mean men. I don't mean, I mean women essentially are excluded from scripture as authors, as the audience, and are excluded in a sense as, uh, as the subject matter. And so I think we need to start by just kind of laying out some of the assumptions that we, 
we would think should show up in scripture. First, we should recognize that the men written about in scripture should be flawed. Here's why. The author is a flawed human being. Whoever the authors are, even in the Book of Mormon, right? Joseph Smith, let's just assume um, the book is a fraud. Joseph Smith is a flawed human being. He's writing the book. We should see characters show up in scripture who are also flawed or or over-the-top mythical, right? And I think you can make that argument. You can make that argument about a lot of different people in the scriptures. The, the story should have people saying sexist things. It should have people saying patriarchal things. And we find this to be the case. I mean, you have Paul who tells women they should keep their mouths quiet and who expresses some views on marriage that just seem really out of touch with common sense. And we see the people in these stories as just being flawed human beings and not always saying the smartest thing. And I think that, for the most part, fits my assumptions. When I look at the Bible, the Old Testament, in the New Testament outside of Jesus, I see people either, A, creating mythical stories that that come off as mythical. They're just too over the top, right? I mean, the, a flood covers the entire earth. God places Adam and Eve in a garden and... And, and some of, you know, here's uh, 200 men who defeat an army of 20,000. Those kinds of things just, just ring to me as like overreaching on creating an extravagant story. And again, the people within these stories are saying things that just, like, I'm like, ah, I wouldn't have said that. That just doesn't come off as a really smart thing to say. And if Jesus is fiction, in simply a compilation of stories and experiences that flawed men attribute to him as a fictional character, I would expect to see more of the same. I would expect to see things that Jesus say going, man, that was stupid to say. You know, now looking forward 2,000 years, that wasn't the brightest thing to say. And yet somehow, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus seems to get it right essentially every time. And, And there is one exception I want to talk about. As my friend says, Jesus hits it out of the park every single pitch. And when I read the New Testament, when I'm reading about Jesus, when I'm I'm listening to the things that are happening to him and the questions that are being asked of him and the demands being made of him, and then listening to his responses, they're deep. They're they're deep on multiple levels. The things he say he says are so wise. And, and things that you could take so many meanings from and they're all applicable. Jesus just seems to get it right at every turn. Everything he does comes off as the right response. It just doesn't meet my assumptions of what a mythical character should do in a story written by flawed people. He shouldn't be this perfect. He shouldn't say things that perfectly. He shouldn't do things that are that deep. If some Joe is just writing this, Jesus seems to get it right. And even when Jesus is harsh, even when he says, I don't come to bring peace, but I come to bring the sword. Even when he seems to diminish his mother and his sisters and at times his brothers 
and and points to hey you know who's my family it's it's anyone who loves the father you know when he does those kinds of things even when he seems to diminish or marginalize christ-like attributes or those who are closest to him he does it in a way that causes me to still sit back for like a half an hour and just ponder like what does this mean like this is deep there's something more to this everything jesus says is deep and profound his culture abhors homosexuality and yet jesus says nothing on the record negatively in fact when he comes into the presence of one who falls in terms of his sexuality falls outside the norm rather than criticize or rebuke he seems to say what it is then seems to teach the crowd that when they are ready to just sit with that God will be ready to enlighten. Right? If, if scriptures are written by a patriarchal sexist Jew or, or a by the law Roman or a Pharisee or a Sadducee or some other person outside of the story truly being about Jesus himself, then we should expect to find Jesus condemning homosexuality to the core when he's presented with a chance to do it, but he doesn't. He runs counter to everyone else in that culture. When he's asked questions, when he's put on the spot, I can think of a hundred things that would be said, and yet Jesus rises above all of that, and he seems to say something completely different that is so deep and touching and profound and not what I would expect of a a biased, heavily influenced early Christian or Jew. The culture is patriarchal. A society where women are considered possessions, where women can be killed for any slip of the law, or even where her testimony contradicts that of a man, the law sides with him. What should Jesus look like if he is a fictional character in such a society? And what is the actual person who comes through? Consider a couple of things that he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those that sent, those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. He uses women, female figures in his parables. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus uses women figures in the stories he tells. We have Mary being the first one who finds him resurrected at the tomb. We have Jesus with a woman who has committed adultery. And he shows compassion on her. There's the woman who touches his garment. Like everywhere else in scripture, it is a a sexist, patriarchal society. And yet in Jesus, you don't see that. Jesus doesn't show the flaws that every other human being within scripture shows. Jesus doesn't say the stupid things that other people within the scriptures say. Jesus doesn't have this over 
patriarchal, masculine, sexist view that everyone else who's writing and the stories they're writing about displays. Jesus is something different. And so when I look at the scriptures, I totally get the criticism when discussing the historical Jesus. But my point would be is that there's something to him. There's just something to him. He is something different than everything else I find within scripture. And for at least part of my my reasoning, I hold on to the Savior because there is value to him. Now let me add a couple other thoughts. One is that even even if Jesus isn't real, and he may not be, even if Jesus isn't real, I can't help but testify that his mercy and his grace have changed me and cleansed me. That in some ways I've been purified and sanctified because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. I've had deep spiritual moments interacting with the atonement, utilizing his grace and his mercy. And so even if Jesus isn't real, I've been changed by him. I've been cleansed by him. I absolutely find deep value in the atonement, in recognizing that that I am so flawed that only by turning to some source of power that is not flawed can I rise above that. And so so if someone with Bart Ehrman or or others want to convince me that Jesus is real, that's fine. But you're going to have to help me understand how how for me the atonement is real in spite of it. I look at the scriptures and I see I see Jesus as a man who extends love and compassion and patience. The the one instance of me saying, "Hey, he just says something silly." It's where he says that, you know, this generation shall not pass away um, and before the Son of Man cometh again. And so I I don't know what to make of that. And I know that apologists can kind of explain it away and what a generation means and what is in the time of God and all that good stuff. That's great. It's the one instance I see Jesus saying something and I'm not quite sure what to make of it. But almost to a T, every other instance, even when he's, when he's harsh, even when he seems to diminish his family, his immediate family, I still find profoundness in what he's saying. So for all the Latter-day Saints out there who are struggling, my fear is, right, you leave the church and you just let it all go. You let Jesus go and you become become atheistic in your beliefs. And I'm just I'm here to just tell you there's something there's something extraordinary about the Savior Jesus Christ. And and because I hold on to him and I can't let him go, I look around and Mormonism is is the only home where I feel like I'm going to be able to breathe and survive and and hang around in finding meaning with my relationship with Jesus Christ. And and I'm I'm gonna just share with you something here. I've I've gone to other churches, I've I've visited other faiths, I've I've made an attempt to say, okay, maybe at some point I just gotta walk away from Mormonism and and try something else out. And I've explored that. And and none of that just seems to seems to nourish me the way that Jesus within our faith does. And so for that reason, I'm here and I'm staying. If I've had anything to say about it, I'm staying. I want to, I want to end 
two things. I want to share with you a little bit of my testimony of Christ, but then I want to share with you a brief audio clip that speaks about doubt and speaks about Jesus and speaks about reconciliation. And I want to, I want to bear testimony first and, and then we'll show the, we'll have, you know, the clip play. When I joined the church, I was converted to the church. I wasn't converted to Christ. I certainly learned about him. I intellectually understood who Christ was. I read Jesus the Christ by Talmadge. I read other works on the Savior. I read the scriptures. I understood the stories intellectually. But my my spiritual testimony was rested on the truth of the church. I've said this before, but in some ways the church did exactly its job by disappointing me. By me seeing how flawed and messy and paradoxical and contradictory the history, theology, and doctrine of the church was, it did exactly what it was supposed to do, which is to draw me to Christ. It essentially removed itself as my foundation and pointed me back to Christ. It essentially said, look, you've based your testimony on me, and this isn't going to cut it. You're going to have to lose faith in me and place that faith in Christ in order to regain hope in me. And so that's what I did. I let, I let the church go as my foundation. And instead, my foundation is the Savior Jesus Christ. And by placing Him as my foundation, I've been able through all the messiness, through the evidence on both sides, through the critic having the upper hand on so many issues, I've been able to still hope in the church and to maintain faith in the restoration. In placing my testimony on in Christ, my spirituality had to shift. It was no longer a rote faith of rituals and certain ways of, of interacting with the institution. Rather, now it's about my private conversations with Christ. It's about my recognizing the spirituality that flows from the atonement. It's about recognizing every day that I'm just a major screw-up. And yet there's this, this person in the New Testament, this person in the Book of Mormon, this person who comes through other restoration writings, who loves me and has compassion on me and who encourages me to press forward. I need the Savior. I get it. Some people say, look, I let go of belief completely and I'm more free and I understand this is the only life and so I make every moment matter. I get it. And in some ways, I've applied some of that in my own life as well. But I see letting go of Christ as being really empty. I see of letting go of this person as being really diminishing to my soul and spirit. Brothers and sisters, I have a testimony of Jesus Christ. I have a testimony that he lives and that he loves us, that he loves all of his children Elder Baller was right that we need to quit focusing on Christ as our elder brother, a Mormon cliche, and begin to recognize that within the gospel we need to be adopted as his sons and daughters. I bear witness that we are sons and daughters of a living God, and that regardless of what happened in Gethsemane, or on the cross, or in Jesus' mortality, that the atonement has power. And I hope that each of you and your lives can find a way to lead with faith 
And each of you are finding ways to let go of the church as your foundation and to place your faith in Jesus Christ to essentially let the church do its job. Let it be flawed. And in being flawed, it says, look, you cannot rest on me. You cannot lean on me. I will let you down. Instead, place your faith in the living Christ. The audio I'm about to share will have a a short pause at the beginning before the, the sound comes on. I hope you'll listen to it till the end. And then I'll join back on to give you a quick closing. So now on to the audio. I remember my little niece ran up to me and told me, we learned about Jesus today. And I could tell by her smile she was so excited to learn about this man that she did not quite know yet, but she knew without a doubt for it to be true, because after all, mommy said so. And that was the first time in my life that I looked into the eyes of a child and envied them, because she had no idea of what it feels like to doubt. What it feels like to have your entire belief system overload with skepticism. To never know the day that you would finally be able to live beyond the shadow of a doubt. I've lived in its darkness for so long. It, it seems like I have all the right questions. But never enough answers. And my faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of my palms. God. Every night I lay my head down to sleep, the city of my mind is attacked by a legion of questions threatening the living rooms of my sanity and holding them hostage. Can you help me? Last year, my grandmother laid in a hospital bed like a bus stop waiting for God to come pick her up. I had never seen such pain. And such confidence living in the same eyes when she told me, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know who I belong to. And I was so happy for her. And something inside of me wished that somehow before she passed away, she could pass down her confidence in God to me like an old family picture. I remember sitting in the back row of a cold sanctuary, crying because I desperately wanted what the preacher was saying to be true, but my doubts were preaching a sermon of their own, and the streams of my tears turned into oceans of frustration. I remember sitting in a college classroom, and the only thing being tested is my faith in God. The only thing passing is my hope. Me, in a backpack full of fear, nowhere to go. No one to help me unpack. I sleep. I sleep, but I never rest. These lines around my eyes are not wrinkles. They are maps that show you the winding roads that lead to my pain. I'm tired. I'm tired. And I'm longing for the day that I can place my fingers in his nail-pierced hands because, honestly, I've considered quitting, but where will I go? Back? There's no home for the living in the land of the dead, so I keep pressing forward. 
Today I have faith, but I can't make any promises about tomorrow. I'm surprised I've held on this long. God, just make me feel like I'm not crazy. God, let me know that I'm not just making friends with these walls. When I pray, I'm not questioning you. I've just got questions. Don't leave me here. Don't. Don't leave me. My child. My child. When it seems like you have all the right questions, but never enough answers, and your faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of your palms, I told you. Faith the size of mustard seeds can rearrange whole landscapes and turn mountains into open highways. Faith comes by my word, so maybe you've cuffed your ears. My child, don't be childish. But consider the child whose faith has not quite learned the definition of impossible. Have your questions. I'm not telling you to have a blind faith. I'm telling you to consider the blind men who had faith and believed my words before they were even able to see me. Consider the birds that eat from my hand and do not fall from the sky without my consent. So how much more will I love the ones that I died for before you doubt me? Doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts, and you will see they are just as empty as the tomb that I walked from. Truth is, truth is, you know I'm here. You know my truth, and you're scared. Scared of what that means. Scared of what that should cost you. That one day, they will all laugh at you, laugh you right out of their classrooms, and scorn you out of their courtrooms. But my love serves as an eviction notice to anxiety. When they cast stones, my love casts out fear. I am the author and finisher of your faith. I've never started a work that I will not finish. I am the one... I am the one who will give you courage to stare death in the face and say, how dare you try to scare me? I know who I belong to. And when it feels like you are drowning, when it feels like you are drowning in a sea of your questions, just know I'm there. I'm there. Like when I drowned in the Red Sea of my blood for you and these hands that took holes will hold you. And when I told you that I would love you forever, I meant it. Don't you see these rings in my hands? See, we are married. For better or for worse. Through sickness and in health, through faith and through questions, till death brings us closer, you are mine. You are mine, and I am yours, I promise. Wow. May, uh, may the Lord warm your shoulders. 
May he give you the strength to go on. May you stand up for truth and righteousness, but may you also go forward in faith, is my prayer. My prayer in the humble name, the majestic name, the amazing name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord warm your shoulders in his sacred name. Amen. Taking out my issues never healed